History Lecture 104, Rabbi Blyweiss. We are, yesterday we, um, this is actually concluding and you missed this yesterday, but um, you'll go back and relearn it. It should be semi-familiar from our tour to Masqueret Batya. Uh, this uh, really very definitional uh, controversy that erupted, an argument that erupted in, in the Shemitiyar Tarmat Tafresh Mem Tet, which in secular dates 1888, 1889, that um, defi defines d already divided lines between the Yeshuva Yashan, the Yeshuva Hadash, uh, the growing secular population and their antagonism to Torah in general, as expressed in this particular case by the Hetu Mechira, um, and how the Gedolim distanced themselves from the the movement called Chovet Sion, it would turn to Zionism, and um, the tremendous the tragedy of those of those valiant souls in Masqueret Batya who uh, who didn't accept the Hetu Mechira and suffered for their decision. And we understand that a person gets immense reward in Olam Haba, they didn't perceive that always as easily in Olam Hazet. The uh, many would be shocked by the whole affair. Many would condemn the Chovet Sion people who were formerly members moved away so that Rabbi Eliezer Gordon, uh, one of the great Rabbani, Rabbanim of Tells, was not only in favor of Chovet Sion, he was a part of this, I mean, I'm going to say part of it, from Europe vicariously, they watched with bated breath the developments in Eretz Yisrael. It's extremely exciting or potentially exciting when you see Jews leaving the confines of the traditional quarters, the four holy cities and the other villages, actually go out and try to make a parnasa in Eretz Yisrael. And you remember with the Nitziv, he, he went out when his Shabbos closed to drink the first glass of wine from Rishol Etzion, from one of these Moshevot, that the, um, the, the realization of the Gemara and Sanhedrin, it's a sign of the of the Mashicha, of, of the growing fruit by Jews in Eretz HaKodesh. Um, and and Rav Gordon was one of those who was very much in favor of the whole project for the seven years before Tarmat, and then he said, the Maskilim have removed the Kedusha, and, and that's why he explains this, for this reason, I withdraw my support. And he expressed what was a very common sentiment in those days. Um, the Baron would be, the Baron Rothschild, who was really, by his own account, um, meant well for the Jews, was stung by the criticism, of course he was in the center of the controversy, uh, really the, 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 the greatest villains of the story were his managers. He has to take some of the uh, blame because he appointed those managers. Uh, they were, they were anti-Tyra, many of them, hostile. And, um, and, and he was stung by the criticism and he would turn on his old ally, Rochefort Molliver, who uh, had originally charmed, charmed him and persuaded him to sign on to this whole project, which was the Baron's most memorable contribution in his lifetime was uh, the building up of the Moshevot, which had a major, which was a major contribution to what would develop in Eretz Israel, but both good and bad, meaning the good stuff, maybe that's famed and obvious, but the bad stuff he'd have to be uh, you know, blamed for as well. Ah, uh, and then nice, yeah, I worked in Baruch Hashem. The next Shemitah cycle, after Tarmat, in 1895-1896, they, um, they came out with a new kula. It was, it was uh, the summer wheat was now sown by Eretz, which was not permitted the first time around. And now already seven years later, the Rabbanim in Yushalayim, Rav Shmuel Salant, the Maharil Diskin, who had now would not have compromised and not have uh, accepted any leniencies, now they allow it because they realize the farmers are not gonna listen to them. 
if you remember only one and a half of the Moshevot deferred to the greatest to the, to the, to the majority of the Rabbanim and didn't work the land during the Shemitah year and the rest of them did and now even in Muscarit Batya um, as their own next generation becoming increasingly assimilated and less, less fervent in their observance of mitzvahs the rabbis do what they can do um, but realize what happened here what a turning point they've come to um, most of the people are working for stipends and they decide they're going to rely on the head to Mechira uh, according to his um, granddaughter's husband who was the Gesher Chaim of Tokachinsky we're going to learn about him too he would be one of the significant figures in Eretz Israel, uh, who was the major source of a lot of what Rav Shmuel Salant said in Paskin. So Rav Salant and Rav Diskin believed that on that turning point, that, that Shemitah of Tarmat, that original Shemitah where there was a immediate relevance in the modern era, if they had withstood the test, if they would have endured, um, they would have brought the Geulah. Sometimes the few have the capacity to uh, turn the tides of history uh, with their own bravery, with their own mysterious nefesh, and that's what the Gedolim in Yerushalayim felt, and it didn't happen. Their failure showed that the few farmers were able to withstand the test, and that's why they were now lenient. By the, um, by, by the end of the first Aliyah in 1903, in the beginning of the second, in 19, uh, in, uh, of the same year, uh, there were now 28 Moshevot. Moshevot is one of these farming colonies. Um, not to be confused with the later um, second Aliyah phenomenon of a Moshav. Moshav is um, related to kibbutz more than is Moshav. Moshevah is a generic term for farming colony. Most of the farming colonies were at least initially religious. Um, almost none of them. Very few of them remained religious. Um, but um, now there were suddenly, in a very short period of time, 28 uh, dotting around Palestine in these, in these days. And um, <clears throat> most of them struggled. They had continuous crises. They went bankrupt. The, their, the crops didn't grow that year, whatever year it was. Rothschild would be forced to the baron would bail them out time and again. By 1910, at this point, um, they're increasingly secular. Uh, the descendants of the first generation grow up with the instruction of the barons, um, administrators and their teachers. They're getting secular education. They're not getting a strong Torah education. They're going off. Uh, and um, by, by this point in 1910, by that Shemitah cycle, Rav Cook is already, I'm a little ahead of myself. I haven't talked about Rav Cook yet, but since I'm tracing the, uh, the early history of, of the Hetzim Mechira, it's relevant to mention that Rav Kook had, a, had the most controversial Hetzim Mechira that came out in 1910, and most, almost everybody relied on it. Um, and the reason for its controversy was Rav Kook had added a new point. Even a farmer who himself ignored the Hetzim Mechira, did not avail himself of the Hetzim Mechira, um, he was considered as if he was relying on the Heter Mechira default, de facto. He, he was like, um, as it were, thrown on him. Rav Kook was doing it L'Shem Shemai, and he felt better this than having no Heter whatsoever. But many people felt that made a mockery of the idea that a person who's not involved in the Heter Mechira himself, he's just working the land. He's just doing explicit averas, and there's no other way of looking at it. Um, 
Rav Kook himself was reluctant. He made it clear that, that the only reason he allowed this Etimahira was he perceived increasing Pikuach Nefesh. They didn't farm the land, they might starve to death. Uh, and he said without the Pikuach Nefesh, he wouldn't support the Heter. Um, today one hears one of the arguments, the less informed arguments. There are people who support the Etimahira who have better arguments than this. So to be fair to the other side, they, 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 they do claim other things. But some of the, some of the more ignorant um, supporters of today's Hetem Mechira say that, uh, hey, Rav Cook supported it, it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Well, that's just reflecting their own lack of knowledge. Rav Cook supported it then. Quite arguably, he would not, he would not, he would have condemned the Hetem Mechira as it developed in later years. Yesterday, the common refrain from the, from the early description that we had of the split between the Yeshuvah Yeshan and the Yeshuvah Chadash and the advent of modernity and the leaving the traditional cities to go farm the land uh, and accept a lot of these changes, the concern always overriding everything. Yeshuvah Yeshan said, great, it's a nice idea, we're concerned about the next generation. If you abandon the, the, the classic way of doing things, what will be, will they have Torah? Uh, when Rav Shmuel Oliver sat side by side in the Chobbet Siyom with his secular maskil, with a, with a counterpoint, thereby giving him legitimacy. And of course, Rav Oliver was a tzaddik and met Lashem Shemai, and he said, we sit within, within the system as a way of influencing them, which is, uh, I, I mentioned yesterday, was also Maizei Avosim Levani. You see that, the, that exact ideology animating the modern orthodox and the national religious world today, that they very idealistically want to join forces we can influence from the inside, as opposed to being naysayers and uh, seclusionists, Haredim, which they don't like. Um, but the response of the Yishuv Yishan is that you want to influence them, what's more likely going to happen is they're going to influence you, and even if you're strong in your amuna, they're going to influence your children. And sadly, they were prophetically correct. The, especially in places like Maskeribatia, Petartikva too, where the farmers really gave their entire lives to coming and developing the soil of Eretz Yisrael, with the idea of, of re reinstating the mitzvahs of Tluyos Ba'aretz. Uh, their children's devotion to Torah waned in the name of progress, and within a, within a generation often, were completely hostile to Torah. In 1908, for example, Rav Cook said, I'm quoting him, all the Moshevot desperately need religious assistance. The influence of the modern schools is destroying the land. Rav Cook said. Um, by 1915, which was hard, which were, 1915 was part of World War I, very dire period for, for everybody in Eretz Israel, certainly Jews, the only subjects taught in the Moshevot that were religious were Bible and prayer and even these were taught as like a tack on, kind of like, okay, now take out your literature book, much like people might have to learn Chaucer in an English class, so the kids were forced to dredge out their old Tanakhim that they didn't really respect, uh, and they daven by giving a quick lip service without really praying at all to Hashem. And by this point, by 1915, most of the people, it was clear most of the children were no longer observant themselves. Um, in 1925, just doing a kind of get an overview of, 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 of the process, of assimilation that took place that the Barons um, administrators and, and, and all of their, their, their cohorts, and then of course the second Aliyah I would add to it because you had an in infusion of secular socialist Zionists coming in. By 1925, which is when Baron Edmund Rothschild visits Eretz Yisrael for the last time, 
in his long career, he was, on the one hand, he went around to, he got a tour of the Moshe vote, now numbering in the, in the dozens, and he was amazed in a positive way at how many of them had prospered uh, after World War I, many of them managed to turn things around in their favor, and he was shocked and disheartened. Remember, the Baron wasn't himself entirely a religious man, but he, was, he understood that Torah was true and that the, se the, the secret of success depended on the Jews' observance of the, Torah, of the, of the mitzvot, and he saw at how people were no longer observant. But he, got, he gets up and he gives the final speech in public, and of course, here in Eretz Israel, the Baron's gonna speak, everybody attends. You, have to, you, you owe him that much honor after uh, making so much possible through his, through his uh, generosity. Um, they, of course, ignored the speech, and he rebukes them in the speech. He, he tells them all the things that, that I'm just telling you now. You have to observe mitzvahs, you can't abandon the way of Jewish tradition. Uh, one of his, one of his, one of his administrators balked and argued with him. He said, we're fine, don't you see we're flourishing without Torah and mitzvahs? So um, the Baron responded, you, monsieur, are a national Jew, and I am a Jewish Jew. Those were, the, those were the only kind that he preferred. Um, the Baron died in 1934 in Paris. He lived a full 89 years. 20 years later, in uh, one of the first years of an, of an autonomous Jewish state, he and his wife's remains were interred from France and reburied in one of, his, um, one of the areas named for him called Ramat Hanadiv. He was, I, when I introduced him, I mentioned his Hebrew nickname was Hanadiv Hayudua, the known uh, con contributor or donor or, or patron, um, philanthropist, because initially he did it all anonymously, but then he was Yadua because everybody knew it was the Baron, really wasn't anonymous. So he was, Ramat Hanadiv was named for him. So their remains, he and his wife's remains, were taken and reburied in Ramat Hanadiv and they did something very, uh, very sweet. They took a bag of dirt from each of the farming colonies that he supported uh, and, and used it to, bur to put into his grave. That should be part of his legacy. Um, during the years, during just the 1880s alone, uh, he paid an estimated $100 million adjusted to inflation for the project of the Moshe Votes. So as a major piece in, in uh, Am Yisrael returning to their land, Again, both positive and negative, and that's the way it goes sometimes in life. Um, today, very few um, farms, yeshuvim, uh, observe Shemitah properly. Um, some completely ignore it. Others rely on the Heta Mechira, which every seven years is revisited, and the controversy comes back and redraws the lines between the various factions. Today, we know of it in terms of Haredi versus Dati Lumi versus Chiloni. You should be aware, though, that a number of Rabbanim increasingly over the decades within the modern Orthodox national religious movement have moved away from the Heta Mechira themselves. Rav Soloveitchik from YU did not support the Heta Mechira, as many of his uh, top students also recognize how difficult that is to do if the whole purpose was pikuach nefesh, they themselves recognized that if we didn't work the land, it would probably not be an issue of pikuach nefesh, it would be one of financial hardship. That's not the same thing. Uh, and many other Talmudic uh, Chachamim in the Dati world um, reject the to Mechira. There are a few valiant souls who um, do keep to all of the laws of Shemitah. We visited such a farm a few weeks ago, they include and they, they deserve mention. You should know of such places. You should support 
such places. We have a Karen Shmita, which is a Shmita fund organization, and I get no, I get no uh, cut of the proceeds by pitching for them and fundraising on their behalf. I only do it because it's uh, they're they're they're, uh, they're deserving. Um, places like Tifrach, Komamiyut, Bnei Reim, Chafetz Chaim, Beis Chilkia, where we visited in Beis Chilkia. That was one of our stops on the Tiul. Yisodot right next door, Shalavim, Mavocharon. Um, in dozens more, there are individual farmers who won't work the land, but the farms are worked. You can see how that's possible too, and the, the farmers just take a year off. Um, one of the uh, miraculous stories that will happen um, in 1952, uh, the first Shemitah year after this estate, the Chazonish goes around uh, trying to persuade uh, everybody in Eretz Israel that they have to keep the mitzvahs, that the success of Jews in Eretz Israel depends on that, and he persuades them don't compromise on Shemitah. Uh, he speaks to a largely uh, um, immune audience. They deafen their ears to his, to his treaties, but one Moshevah, Komamiyut, which had wavered, they weren't sure were they going to rely on the head to Mechir or not, they decided, take a deep breath, and they say, we're going we're gonna to listen to the Chazunish, we're not going to work the land this year, which is immense bravery. Uh, we'll see in 1952, these were hard years. These were years that families were given out their weekly tomato and, and their weekly eggs. They, these were years of austerity, as they called them, until the Nazi reparations started to come in, which is another controversy. We'll get to all this in the 1950s. But um, they they, uh, they they um, they they, did, they observed shemitah, and um, that year at one point there was a um, horde of locusts that had swept up Eretz Israel, uh, destroying much in their wake, including a lot of the farms that uh, relied on the head to Mathira. And uh, there's photographs and all kinds of documentation to show that this was not just a made-up story. They stopped at the border of Komaliyut, the, the locusts, and they spared it. They, did, they didn't touch it. Uh, they actually, there's, there's film footage of the locusts stopping right at the border. Um, that's a bit of the story of the Pumos of Shemitah. Um, I'm going to now describe um, Exciting times with a lot of very famous figures, and I'm going to describe a few of them to you because you should be aware of who's alive uh, right as we're ending the, tw the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. They include a figure I've mentioned a few times, Sadoka Cohen. He actually dies in 1900, but um, he was from Lublin. He was one of the fig. He was part of the um, revolution within the revolution in Chassidus, coming from Litvish roots himself. He uh, became one of the followers of, um, of uh, within Kutsk, one of the students of the Kutsk Rebbe, Rav Mordechai Lehner, the Izbacha Radzin Rebbe. Um, Rav Tzadok Cohen himself was an intriguing figure. He was an immense Torah scholar, was offered rabbinic positions. Every last one he rejected. And he, he chose instead not to make a livelihood from Torah. He ran a small used clothing store instead. Only when Rav Leibola, you remember the story of Rav Leibola, Eger, the grandson of Rabbi Akiva, the great story, when, when, when he became a chassid, his father's had shiva, and he wanted to know from the Kotzka Rebbe if he needed to be Menachem Avel. So Rav Leibola, Eger, was the leader of Hasidis, and when he died in 1888, Rav Tzadok Cohen became the figurehead of an increasingly fractured Hasidis, because every generation that passes, there are more subgroups, of Hasidim, but Rav Tzadok Cohen was a figure that most could accept and rally around an immense Talmud Chacham who, uh, who commanded a lot of respect. Um, 
he took over the leadership of the Hasidim. His, uh, he would give popular classes and they would be compiled in a, a book called the Pritzadi. And again, if, if you've never heard of it, you will hear of it from now on. Trust me, people, you'll hear the Vitaira says the same, but Pritzadi, Ratsadu Kakoan, I've quoted Ratsadu Kakoan, I'll tell you how. He explains what I've claimed is one of the most important turning points in all of history. Of course, I'm thinking of what happens at the beginning of the Second Temple period. Can somebody help me out here? What happens, what changes in the world dramatically in the beginning of the Second Temple period? Ratsadu Kakoan is one of the great. Uh, Excellent. You got it. You got it. He's the one who gives a lot of that Torah, explaining that when they nullified the, when they, they contained the Yitzhahara for idolatry, and they put it in a lead tube, so they um, simultaneously lost Nevoah, and, um, and we couldn't pray anymore, and we lost, uh, m- m- revealed miracles, and the spiritual nature of the universe changed. Um, that's, that's, he, he writes about that in depth. The Mikhtev Eliyahu quotes him. Um, the next figure I'm going to talk about came up in Gemara Shir this, this morning. Um, Rabbi Chil Halevi Epstein is the Aruch Shulchan. Uh, Akiva, you, you referred to him also. Right? You, I, I remember one, one idea and you, you referred to another one. Um, his Aruch Shulchan was came out the same time as the Mishnah Baruch and was on a similar footing. It was, a, it was the latest summary of all of halacha, more elaborate, much more elaborate than the Mishaburah, much more elaborate than the um, Kisra Shulchan Aruch for sure. Um, what he does is he incorporates the Bavli and the Yerushalmi and much of the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. It's exhaustive. Uh, here's what some of the Golan have to say, the Aruch Shulchan, comparing it to the Mishaburah, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav, Rav Henkin, and others say that it's more authoritative than the Mishaburah. Because um, even, they both came out around the same time. The, the, actually, when people were writing such massive, ambitious, lifetime works, they came out one volume at a time. And so it was a volume of the Mishra came out, and then a volume of the Arach Shochan that came out. Um, so the, the, they said because in addition to being an immense Talmud Chacham, he was also a rabbi of the community. So with his real life experience, he was able to bring a lot of the dimension, the human dimension to halacha that... Uh, that you didn't always find in other sources. Interesting point, they were contemporaries and they, they respected one another, but the Mishnah never once mentions the Shulchan, even though he was clearly aware of it. He, knew, he, he certainly had, uh, had learned it. Some say there was one point of, of um, argument between them. The Aruch Shulchan has one um, very controversial leniency. Um, it's regards, it comes with regards to um, a man saying Kriyashma, and by extension learning Torah, saying Brachos, or doing anything of holiness in the presence of an immodestly clad woman, specifically a married woman without a head covering. He points out that in our great transgressions, uh, in Volozhin, can you picture this? In Volozhin, in the late 19th century, I don't know what your picture of Volozhin is, it's great yeshiva, but observance was already flagging even among the very uh, the role model leadership and many wives of Rabbanim in Volozhin didn't cover their hair. And the Yachal Shulchan rails against it and, and points out it's a problem. Then he also says an immense leniency. He says because it's so widespread nowadays that the women are not covering their hair, a man could be lenient and therefore say Shema and learn Torah and say Brachos in the presence of such a married woman without her head covered. And that was so controversial that many feel that the Mishnah never mentions, never cites the Aruch Shulchan once because of his disagreement on that point.
That may or may not be true. Um, he also, when I said that the Aruch HaShulchan is exhaustive, whereas the Mishnah only covers the first of the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, the Aruchayim, Aruch HaShulchan is, is comprehensive. It's Yeridea, it's Hoshin Mishpat, and it's Ebene Ezra, so it's, it's very, very helpful. It's also sprawling and sometimes overwhelming. Um, his way of organizing it, whereas Mishnah Burra, let's say, features the text of the Machaber and the Ramah inside and then his commentaries on the side. So the Aruch HaShulchan is just paragraph after paragraph. And sometimes very long, so hard for a, uh, um, a, beginner, a beginning level student to, to go through. When I say comprehensive, he has more than just the Shulchan Aruch. He has one of the first early authoritative works in the modern era on agricultural laws called the Aruch HaShulchan HaAsi, um, which takes up where the Peas the Shulchan left off. We mentioned the students of the Vilnagon. Um, there are not so many uh, Gedolim out there who have who have Psak Halacha about and Maestros, and Orla, and, and Kilayim, and many of the other issues that uh, come up in Eretz, back in Eretz Israel. And he's not the last, and we're going to see that he's going to pave the way for others to come, the Chazonish, uh, uh, you know, notably Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, Rav Yashuv, many others. Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, thank you very much. Okay, so many would also enter the fray and, and, and uh, develop this area in contemporary halachic terms. The Aruch HaShulchan was one of the pioneers in the modern era. Uh, of course, he recognized in writing this that this was increasingly relevant as Jews were returning to Eretz Yisrael. Um, you remember the connection? Um, the Aruch HaShulchan's wife was the Nitziv's sister, and his daughter was the Nitziv's second wife. And I mentioned the Nitziv married his niece. And not only is that allowed, but I should really add the Gemara and Sanhedrin that I just learned this morning points out that not only is it allowed to marry your niece, but it's seen as a great act of chesed based on a pasuk in Yeshaya, uh, that it, it, you're actually helping her and saving her um, in, in, by doing so. Um, so, go, so, yeah. Um, Reb Epstein had, had, had an inter- came from an interesting family. I'm just going to mention one family member. He had a son named Rav Baruch Epstein who authored a couple of, uh, of, of very important works. One of them is the Torah Tzmima. It's a great resource. What he does, it's a commentary in the Chumash that um, brings you the most important relevant Gemaras and Midrashim on given Pesukim. There have been other works that have elaborated along, this, along these lines, but he's one of the first to go and just give you what a Chazal say about this Pasuk, which you'd think would be an obvious kind of a commentary to write, but he's, it's called the Torah Tzmima. We have it here. Uh, he has footnotes there. It explains a lot of, a lot of um, connections, how did Chazal get this from the Pasuk and the rest. Um, he also writes an interesting, really original um, memoir that he called a four-volume memoir called the the Makor Baruch that would actually be subject to some controversy. He writes in a very original style, a very personal style, um, and sometimes unexpected, and reflects different kinds of mashkafas that you don't always see um, in the standard literature. Okay, um, all of these gadolim were contemporaries, and now we're moving to a different corner of the world where yet another gadol. Uh, flourished. His name is Rabbi Yosef Chaim, um, but you probably know of him by his um, the name of his sefer, the Ben Ish Chai. He was a gadol in Baghdad. lived from 1832 to 1909. Um, his rav was actually the rav of Baghdad, but he died 
when Rav Yosef Chaim was 25 years old, and so he became the new Rav as a young man. Interestingly, he never had the position of Chacham Bashi, which was the real figurehead, but he was recognized. He was posekador throughout the Middle East. Ashkenazim, Sephardim alike, revered him, sought his, sought his chuvos. Um, he was a master, among other areas, a master of all of Torah, but among, among the areas of Torah, he was a great Makubal, a Kabbalist. His commentary, the Ben Ishchai, is sometimes called the Sephardi Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. Daniel, is it familiar to you? The Ben Ishchai? No? Yemenite, but Yemenites don't, don't ever defer? Don't ever look? I know no. it's a different thing, but no? I actually don't know. Not at all? Okay, fine. Um, it's why the guys in the basement use the Ben Ishchai. It's, a, it's an important source. Ashkenazim sometimes use it too, so it's not, uh, not too far-fetched to imagine anybody, anybody using it. Um, it also has Drashus on the Parsha. He has a commentary, a Kabbalistic commentary on a Gadita, uh in, in the Talmud called the Ben Yoda. And I mentioned when um, Akiva and Barak might recall, we visited the um, traditional grave site of um, Benayahu Ben Yoyada, the head of the Sanhedrin um, uh, in the late period of David and, and um, Shlomo's right-hand man, King Shlomo's right-hand man. <coughs> and the Ben Yishchai understood that he was a reincarnation, a Gilgul of Benayahu Ben Yoyada, And that's why each of his books is named um, after him, after Psukim uh, describing him. Um, another major contribution to the world, the Beni Shchai uh, would be a major uh, influence on the founding of a great Sephardi yeshiva in the old city called the Yeshiva Porat Yosef that was founded in 1914. He had a major hand in, in developing the yeshiva there as well and, and, and uh, uh, great Sephardi poskim of the last century, many of them uh, really came out of that yeshiva. Um, another great Sephardi figure who has just such a fantastic life story. Every now and then, I'm allowed to be a little irrational in how I attribute and how I um, allocate my time in this class. So every now and then, I'll pause on one because he has such a great story that sheds light on the period. Um, so let me tell you about the state Chemed, who was more than just a camp. People know the name because there's a Orthodox summer camp called the state Chemed. But um, the state Chemed is named after Rav Chaim Chizkiah Medini who actually never went to school before. You don't have to be a Gadol in Tyra. Uh, uh, you don't have to go to school to be a Gadol in Tyra. He learned from his father, and otherwise he was an autodidact. He self-taught. Like the? Um, uh, Don Lagone, of course. He was, um, he was in Eretz Israel initially. When, his, when he became orphaned, he supported his family and somehow learned. He was probably one of these people who had um, virtual memory. Everything he looked at, he remembered. Uh, there very little, I mean, other than, uh, you know, Siata Dishmaya, very hard to explain his, 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 his capacity for remembering everything. When he was stationed, he was a tutor up in, up in the Ottoman Empire. They, they didn't appreciate what a Gunland Torah he was. He was just tutoring kids. And traveling merchants from the Crimea came through and they heard his Torah and they said, you're just a tutor here, would you go come home with us and be our Rebbe? And he agreed. And the Crimea is one of these little corners of the Jewish world. Can you picture it on a, on a map, on a world map? Crimea is um, just south of the Ukraine, right by the Black Sea. It was uh, in the news this last year because uh, Putin and the Russians went and captured it. Uh, let's take the Crimea. So they did. 
Um, it was also home to an isolated Jewish community. Uh, the story reminds me of the story of the Jews, of the Bukharan Jews, who were isolated at a couple centuries earlier, and they sent it to the Rambam, Rabbi Yosef and Maimon went up, and, uh, and basically led a Baltula movement there. Right, exactly, good memory. Right, so the similar story you find in the Jewish community of Crimea, Rabbi Chaimi Chizke Medini goes up and, and agrees to become their Rav. Um, he actually is there for a good portion of his life from 1867 to 1899, and he revives them. <coughs> he, again, same thing, kashas the mikvahs and teaches them Torah, teaches them love for Eretz Yisrael, where he was from. Um, and during this period, now you have to picture, this is extraordinary, get this idea. He sits virtually alone, it's not a place of Torah. It's hard to be a Talmud Chacham if you're isolated. Remember the story of Rabbi Lazar ben Arach. Hard to, but somehow, miraculously, he sits and writes his work, which is a, an encyclopedia called the Stei Chemed. Without many books, he must write it from memory. The Stei Chemed is Shas Rishonim Achronim on every topic relevant to daily life in Halacha. And it's exhaustive and comprehensive and a mind-boggling achievement. And when it was published, he was not, not a known entity. In the Torah world, you know, if you don't publish and you're sitting off in the Crimea, who ever heard of you? So, so they didn't know who he was. And suddenly it's published and it's astounded the entire Torah world. Who is this? Well, where did he get this from? And when they verify that it's from a genuine certified uh, gadol, um, it, nothing like it ever previously existed in scope or in clarity. Um, you might remember there was a, an encyclopedia that came out called the Pachad Yitzchak, not to be confused with the modern Musr Sefer of the same name, but it didn't go as deep and it didn't have the same elaborate analysis and it wasn't as long as the Stei Chemed. Um, now, until recently, the Stei Chemed lacked an index or any clear organization. The way Rabbi Beryl Wine described it was like getting to Bnei Brak. You know how an Israeli tells you to get to Bnei Brak? Well, first you go to the Coca-Cola plants, and then you follow along uh, the, the, the main street, Rebbe Hahnemann Street, you make a left on Rebbe Kiva, and then you go, right? And then, of course, the uninitiated, never been to Bnei Brak, who says, well, well, wait, I don't even know where the Coca-Cola plant is. To which the Israelis say, well, then I can't help you. This is one of the cyclical logics. So that's like finding something in Stei Chemed if you don't know what you're looking for. First, learn the Stei Chemed, and then you'll know how to find it. But it's so vast, you don't know where to begin, right? So now, Baruch Hashem, there's an index. Well, anything you guys should learn today from this class that find out where that Coca-Cola plant is? Yeah, that's probably useful to do. Um, it would be for the initiated, for those Gedoli who did take the time to go through its, its exhaustive pages. So it would be um, considered a primary source for many Shilas and Shuvas. They would know to look things up. Um, it would become, it would eventually, the other works would emerge that I don't displace it because the Stei Chemet also is a post-sex. You could look up Sakalacha there, but you had, let's say, um, more modernized, computerized works like the Encyclopedia Talmudit, put out by the Mosad Rav Kook, which, which you should know, in its heyday, when they were putting out the volumes of the Encyclopedia Talmudit, they had, some, they had something like a, a staff of 60 to 70 full-time people working on it. I think it's not even done yet. Yeah, they, I think they stopped. I don't, volumes have not come out in some time, so I don't know if they're, they're doing it maybe because they, they came out with a later digitalized, the Otsar, the Otsar Chochma, excuse me, Otsar Poskim database, making the work on the Encyclopedia obsolete. You don't even need that anymore, so that's my theory. I don't know if that's true, but just I'm just comparing it. On the Encyclopedia Talmudit, 
You had this whole full-time staff working just to, you know, on, on, on each page. This Seychemet was a one-man operation. He did it all by himself. He actually wrote many works. Seychemet was just one of them. Uh, after, uh, as an old man, uh, 66 years old in 1899, he, the Russians kicked him out of Crimea. After all the dedication, all that he had done for the Jewish community there, and so he shrugged his shoulders and returned to Eretz Israel, where he belonged. And he comes to Eretz Israel, and immediately they say that everybody there says, "Be our Chachambashi." The Sephardi community want 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 their gadol, uh, and he refuses it. You remember what we say in Pirkei Avos, "Haboreach min kavod," right? Oh, that's one thing. There were other people for the job. He didn't want that job. And the one who runs, one who one who. Um, Chases kavod honor, the uh, honor eludes him, and the one who runs away from honor, honor catches up with him. And indeed, he ran away from honor, and he ran down to the um, second holiest place in the world, of course. Second holiest place in the world, of course. Well, we're not going, that's for sure. Hebron. Uh, well, I know you're like, like literal places, like Amnesty is the holiest place. Right? Oh, fair enough. Oh, yeah, that's that is. Oh, city, let's say. Hold we'll on, second holiest city in the world. He goes down to Hebron, and in Hebron, they beg him, they implore him, please be our Gadol, to the point that he can't resist, and he says yes. And he takes the role as the Rav in Hebron, and he serves there until his death, and he's buried there. Um, interestingly, the Arabs, while he was there, revered him as a holy man. They also recognize Kedusha when they see it. Um, they actually stole his tahrikim from his grave. They exhumed his um, shrouds thinking they held some kind of mystical magic or something like that. Um, interestingly also, has anybody ever been to the, oh, most of you haven't been to Hebron. So where I would have taken you, had we gone next week, um, what, um, I would have taken you up to the 400 year old graveyard where among others, Tehemet is buried, and um, you'd see that, um, whereas the Arabs after 1929, vandalize and decimate much of the cemetery, his tomb remained most, remained mostly untouched, because they still, even after his death, revered him. Um, in the same generation, this is all more or less simultaneous, um, lived Rav Chaim Soloveitchik. We met his father, the Beis HaLevi. He's called Rav Chaim Brisker because he moved to Brest, which is referred in Jew uh, Jews often tweak the names of the cities to get them away from any association of idolatry, so we call it Brisk. Oh, he's the father of the Brisker Rav for sure, but he's the Brisker Rav was Rav Chaim's son. Uh, one can one can more prob more accurately say he's the founder of what's called the Brisker Derech, which is still upheld around the world. Uh, it, it certainly want to say the Brisker Kolel, um, not far from here in Yerushalayim, uh, maintains it. But you could people assert it's, and I think this is an accurate assertion. It's probably the most dominant method of learning in yeshivas today. Um, what does it mean? What is the brisker there? This is what he taught. He taught his students very much in the spirit of the Vilna Gon and Rav Chaim of Volozhin, his ancestor, and, 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 um, and, and the system of learning in Volozhin. But now he's in brisk. Deep analysis, careful and exact categorizations of halacha. Is it the chefza? Is it the gavra? Is it the thing? Is it the man? With a, a, immense care and fine-tuned detail, emphasizing one book over, arguably, over all other books. What book is that? If you're a brisker, if you're, if you're a brisker a student, what, which book will you emphasize? The Mishnah Torah of the Rambam will be central. And in fact, we're going to hear now, not one, not two, dozens 
in the modern era, dozens of gedolim will write their great works on the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, including, of course, Rav Chaim Brisker. Um, his, it's called the Chidushi Rebbeinu Chaim on the Yad. Anybody ever learned it before? Okay. It's this thin, tiny little book. Not tiny little, but like this thin book that you think, that's his magnum opus? Uh-huh. Because every word, typical to Brisk style, every word is carefully measured. How carefully? He was known in the middle of the night to wake up suddenly, wash his hands, uh, I guess to say, I guess very clear. I don't know exactly how, how that would work. Run downstairs to change one word, and then go back to sleep. Literally, he lost sleep over the wording, and in in, 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 so it's there's nothing superfluous in it. There's no extra word. Everything is so carefully rendered. Uh, that that that's how he uh, that that was his system of learning. Before you leave, I want to take a second since we have at least a group here. Um, tomorrow is an irregular day. I think we're going to have history at 2 o'clock. We'd love for you to come. It's nicer than having a chavrusa. If it's not an imposition on you, 2 o'clock, if, it's, if it conflicts, we understand. But we're going we're gonna to continue uh, so we can uh, march ahead. And at Olpan, we, we said we're going to have it one fifteen. if that's okay with you. Does that mess you up? That's what Zeb proposed. If it's a problem, you'll tell me afterwards. You're excused if it's a problem. Guys wanted it, and I, I, agreed, I agreed to that. Um, if you have a conflict, that's reasonable. Okay, in history at 2 o'clock tomorrow. The, um, <clears throat> he worked, for example, this is how exacting of a mind was he? He worked okay, for... Exacting ones. Uh, so exacting that um, the problem of star, what's a star? That's what you think. He wasn't happy with that answer. And he was intrigued and bothered by star that he worked on it for over 50 years. And 50 years... I don't know exactly, I would have loved to have been there for that moment. He suddenly looked up and said, I know what a star is. He, re- he achieved some kind of um, understanding. Um, I've praised before, I'm allowed to praise him, we're going to do, do so tomorrow. Aaron Ashida in our shir has, uh, shows early signs of a similar midah, of being fixated on something that doesn't sit right with him in his learning, and he doesn't abandon it. And all, you know, a Rebbe gives an answer, okay, Rebbe, that's very nice, but I'm not satisfied, still good for him. And he doesn't, doesn't let it rest and, and ever. And some, we'll go to our graves sometimes with things that we don't let, we, we're not satisfied with. That's what a, a, a careful student of Tyra uh, does. Unless you accept it as MS, you've got to keep working on it. Unless you, unless you feel you, 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 you've uh, you know, achieved that. Um, students compiled his Chidushim on Shas based on his Shiurim. Um, he had very famous students. His sons were among his students, which you might think, well, that's no fair, it's just in the sons, and it is completely fair. Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, Rav Elva Soloveitchik, we know of as the Briskarov, and he's gonna get his own entry here, you can be certain, um, but they, uh, they, they worked on themselves. It wasn't just because they were to the manner born, it was no nepotism that they became gedolim in their own right. Um, and students include Rav Baruch Ber Leibovitz, Rav Vizzer Zalman Meltzer, Rav Elchanan Wasserman, Rav Shimon Shkup, all figures that we're gonna hear about. Um, and many more. According to legend, and this actually only really is funny if you understand the personalities of all these uh, great, great Ravanim, um, but you can appreciate it on some level. Listen to, the, listen to the legend. The legend has it that Rav Chaim Brisker, whose every word was so carefully uh, thought through, once said, this table is a cow. Ravelvula, his son, the Brisker Rav, 
said that meant that the table has the same halachos as a cow. Rosh Shimon Shkok said, what, no, no. What it's a joke. It's like Purim Torah here. But it, there's truth in it because this is their, their, it reflects their different modes of analysis. So again, Rav Elbala said it, that means that the table has the same halachos as the cow. Rav Shimon Shkop said, no, no. It meant that the molecules in a table could be rearranged and used to form a cow. And Rav Baruch went to milk the table. It's a joke. And again, it's funny on its own terms, but if you understood the, 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 the figures in, in it and their approach to Tyra, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a certain charm and wit to it. Um, Rav Chaim Brisker would get up sometimes to say of a shir. Shir in those days, um, in the generation before, people played with their phones during shir um, um, and, 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 and had ADD issues. Um, I know that's hard to imagine there was such a time, but not that long ago before, before the modern media destroyed our brain cells. The, um, there was a time that Shear would go on three hours, four hours at a stretch. Um, not just in Torah world, in university also a lecture could go such, such, a, such an extent that people could actually sit there with their eyes, their eyes open listening and taking it in. <coughs> Today we need somersaults and even then after five minutes we, we start spacing out. The, um, in any case, he would get up to give Shear sometimes, all prepared to go. A student would ask a question and he would say, you're right, and he would cancel the rest of the Shear in his intellectual honesty. Now the students probably didn't even, wouldn't even know the difference had he got up and given the shear, but he wouldn't do that. He was all truth. So that's what Torah stands for. Um, Rav Chaim Brisker was also, and really not contradictory to any of this, if you're a pure and not analytically correct Torah Jew, that also means that you're an immense mensch and bal chesed and, and, and a human being who loves other, other Jews, and he was a Baal Chesed who appealed to Jews from all backgrounds. He had very strong opinions. Uh, we're going to hear about him. He was, he was among the um, strongest critics of the um, early Zionist movement. Uh, so, it would be, so his, his son would be one of the, one of the uh, modern anti-Zionists, uh, the flagship anti-Zionist. But everybody loved him and revered him. And he drew such a large and diverse crowd, religious and secular and everything in between. Um, his home was constantly filled. The corridors of his home would, would be filled with people in the corridors. And so the merchants would come and hang what we call the Paschavilim in Yiddish, their um, advertisements in the corridors of Chaim's home because they knew that they would reach a very wide audience. It was like a commercial. You know, everybody's going to Rav Chaim. you imagine? Right? That, was, that, was a known, that was a known reality. Um, there were a couple of very, uh, great fires that, that destroyed uh, Jewish communities. One in Volozhin in the Jewish quarter. And um, during that fire, um, suddenly he disappeared, and everybody became worried. And um, and they saw that no, no, he was busy helping people. He was reuniting children with their frantic parents. Um, and at one point, he disappeared completely. And they thought that he was, that was it. And suddenly, in the middle of a of a building that was about to collapse, being consumed by flames, suddenly they saw a figure emerging. A figure emerging from the building with two small children, one under each arm. Rav Chaim came out saving their lives uh, at the risk of his own life. Um, there was a great fire in Brisk many years later, and, and he performed simil similarly legendary efforts. Um, 
Here again, you see uh, wonder stories that are wondrous, not because of miracles he performed, but because of his immense Avas, uh, Avas Rios, Avas Yisrael. And a role model. Um, and in Germany, who are the Gedolim in Germany? We, we, met, we met briefly, we met the Aruch Lener, who uh, some of us are learning about in the, in the Gemara, in Morishir, we, we met Rav Simshenfall Hirsch, the student, Rav Azriel Hildesheimer. So their student, the next generation, is Rav David Hoffman, 1843 to 1921, who learned in Presburg in Berlin, under, uh, under Rav Hildesheimer, under, under the Maharam Shik, is another important figure that I, I haven't had a chance to talk about. Um, he actually goes so far as to earn a doctoral degree in philosophy in 1871, unusual for a POSIC, but in Germany, uh, kind of fits the bill. Um, he was a leading posek. I've learned his tshuvas before. Uh, he was an expert in Midrash Halacha. And he's one of the first, on a very high level, to take on a new theory that Divisionschaft <coughs> had uh, come up with. Uh, it was called the Graf Wellhausen theory of biblical criticism. What in the in academic circles would be known as the JPDNE, the the four, and then some say other off human authors of the Torah text, right? The Graf Wellhausen theory. He is one of the first Jews, Torah Jews, who takes on this the biblical critics, um, but he's able to do, he's capable of doing so on their level in their terms, coming from his a university background, but a, but but a figure of pure Yira Shemayim. Did it work? I mean. No, no, but what do you mean? Does it work? Does it? Remember of Chaim of Elohim? Our job is to do the right thing, not necessarily to get the results. You have to make the case. You have to show there is a refutation in the Torah. There are many people out there in the world who aren't going to believe you. They've come a lot. They've already come to their set conclusions before you've begun. That doesn't. That doesn't mean that a defense shouldn't be mounted. Also, there are people who will. For sure. And if nobody comes up to defend Torah, then that's a chilul Hashem. And he was capable of doing that. And in Eretz Yisrael, in the next generation, perhaps after the Rav Shmuel Salant from the Maral Diskin, we find emerging another gadol in the form of Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, 1848 to 1932, long life, who was, interesting pedigree, he had learned by the Ksav Sofer, the son of the Hassan Sofer in Hungary. He makes Aliyah in 1873, and would become a leader of the old Yeshuv, the Yeshuvah Yeshan, also a critic of the uh, Hetra Mechira. Um, in 1898, Kaiser Wilhelm, um, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany visited, and there's famous stories, Herzl goes and meets him and tries to persuade him to sign on to the Zionist movement. The Kaiser's not necessarily interested. Um, when he comes to Jerusalem, all the tour guides tell you the apocryphal story of the fact that they, um, when the Kaiser walks into Jerusalem, there was no room for him to fit under Jaffa Gate because it was mounted uh, German style, Germanic style on horseback with this big uh, spiked helmet that the spike went up to the heavens uh, and he didn't fit under the arch. So the story that they all tell, whether it's true or not, it's a great story, um, is that they knocked down that opening in Jaffa Gate where all the cars go through nowadays so that the Kaiser could go through. So. People are breathless. The king is here. The king is here. People like to see royalty. And many Jews ran out to see, see the Kaiser, not Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who was asked, why don't you come out and see him? You know, there's a brach, we say, on seeing a non-Jewish king too, 
that Hashem gives over from his majesty to the flesh and blood, so why don't you go see the king? And Rav Yosef Chaim very presciently pointed out, he said, I don't, I don't go, I don't even say the bracha before the king of Amalek. Interesting. That he recognized in Germany the seat of Amalek uh, half a century before the Holocaust. Um, we haven't met Rav Cook. He's going to come up soon. Um, he opposed many of Rav Cook's policies in Ashkafos. Rav Cook would be considered the founder, maybe, or, or the, the Rav, the Posek of what would eventually become the, the national religious world. Um, but he and Rav Cook were friends. He, he respected him as the Talmud Kocham. Um, Famously, in 1913, they led an expedition of other rabbanim, including Rav Chalap and others, um, to go around the Moshevot to be mechazik then. Remember, in 1913, the Moshevot were a mess, uh, and, and Torah was in shambles, and they, their goal was to try to instill, inspire them and instill new, new blood and, and new excitement in learning Torah and keeping mitzvot, and to describe to the people uh, you know, why, with the, the importance of their, of their mission in Eretz Yisrael. At the end of the journey, um, the two interesting figures reached very opposite conclusions. Rav Cook was encouraged. He said, yeah, I mean, it was a shanda what happened. It's, and in some places, in, in, in Zichr and Yaakov, they didn't even bother to greet the rabbonim. Yeah, rabbis are coming out. Yeah, you know, tell, tell, me, tell me when I'm done in the field. Uh, the no Kabbalah's punim, all kinds of outrages uh, that, that, that the secular, many of the secular people um, showed no Kabbalah Torah. Okay, that was, that, was their, that was where they were holding um, in any case, Rav Cook was encouraged. He said, but look at how much, this is very typical of Rav Cook, look at how they're farming the land. Look at how they're preparing um, the raw soil for the messianic days, was his reaction. Rav Zonenfeld didn't have that reaction. He was shocked at the cold reception, and he realized that um, this new movement was, if left unchecked, if there wasn't a strong resistance, spelled the destruction of Torah in Eretz Yisrael. And so he resolved not to cooperate with this new movement. At this point, it is called the Zionist movement. But people get this confused. Opposing Zionist ideas means opposed, is opposing secularism. It has nothing to do with opposing Eretz Yisrael. Living in Eretz Yisrael is an eternal mitzvah for every Jew. And when his poor grandson um, asked him, Tati, should I stay in Eretz Yisrael where I'm going to be a common laborer uh, earning nothing or maybe can I accept an important job as a rabbi abroad? So Yosef Chaim Paskin as follows, he said, whoever has the ability to live and the means to live in Eretz Yisrael and does will not have to answer for it in Olam Haba. And he told his grandson, stay. Stay, even with its hardship. Do you know how much... Do you, do you know how you make a small fortune in, in Eretz Yisrael? You bring a large one, okay, and then you watch it get very small very quickly. Um, he himself, nobody ever saw. He's an interesting example. Nobody ever observed in Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld that he ever took steps towards making a parnasa. And there's a machlokis in the post scheme about what we need to do if we need to do anything for Ishtadlus. It seems that there's a view, the Shevet Alevi writes, writes about this, that um, there are those, perhaps like Yosef Chaim, who are such extraordinary Ba'ale Emuna, such people of faith, that they, um, that Hashem just provides for them and they make do on very little. At one point, he, um, he, was, uh, he was a guttle in Yerushalayim in the early 20s. He actually travels to Jordan to Transjordan and visits with the King Hussein. They explore the possibility of an alliance. 
he sees maybe the Arabs are a future ally if the secular Zionists are not. Um, when he leaves the country, he, he uh, calls the Beit team together to do Hataras Nadarin because he had made a neder, a vow, when he first came that he would never leave Eretz Yisrael. That's how strong, that's, that's how, uh, how much um, importance he attributed to being in the land. Um, and he had to do matrineder to go abroad to, to do something that he felt was in the, in the common good of the Jews. He had a life of hardship. Eight of his children died. He uh, co-founded an organization that still exists today called the Eida Haredis. You see it on half your kosher products in Israel. It started in 1919 um, and still goes strong. It opposes secular Zionism and most of the secular Yeshua's activities. Um, he was an immense Oev Yisrael. He loved Jews, all Jews, everywhere, and he was devoted to them. In one point, as an old man in 1929, there were riots in the streets, but he was invited to be Sandak at a bris. And so, against everybody's advice, he left and walked in the middle of the streets to go attend the bris and be the Sandak, because the Jews needed him. Last two figures I'm going to talk about today are in the world of Hasidus. We're doing sort of a survey of, of different sectors of the Jews, different parts of the world and different kinds of Jews. Um, these two are um, disciples, uh, offshoots of the Kutzker revolution in Chassidus. One is named of Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter, but you would know of him by his book, The Sfas Emes. Uh, he, was, he was the grandson of the Chidush Yarim, the father of Chassid Gor, of Ger Chassidim. He was, I mentioned him briefly when we, when we met the Chidush Yarim, the brother-in-law of the Kutzker. Um, Misfas Emes was nine years old when he became an orphan. His father died and um, his grandfather took him in and from that point on he was raised by his grandfather, the Chidush Yarim. That's quite an age gap. Right? An old man and a nine-year-old boy. And it's such an image in my mind, I uh, think about this. Um, they led parallel lives. The little boy never left his grandfather's side. They uh, slept no more than four hours out of every 24. They never wasted time. No playing ball in the street for this nine-year-old. Um, they ate when there was food. They ate very little. And they learned Bahasmada. What is Hasmada? Tamid, Masmid, constantly, around the clock. When he was 10, he met the Kutzker Rebbe. He said that changed his life. When he was 15, he married. Now, usually in these days, um, the minag of young married couples, a lot of them were young, was to go live by her family. He, he would live by the in-laws. But in this case, he stayed with his grandfather. You don't leave the Chidush Yarim. If that's your grandfather, you stay put. Um, and when he was 19, his grandfather depart, uh, was, was Niftar, passed away. And the Hasidim uh, begged him, would you please be the next Rebbe? And he said, no. Um, his Zaydi's last words to him were Labela, that's what he called him, Labela Kaddish. But he understood not that he had to be the Rebbe, but rather continue the legacy, continue the Torah legacy. Um, he became a local Rav in the city of Gur, but he resisted being the new Rebbe. Um, the Alexander Rebbe did take the job and died four years later. And then they didn't let the Spasemis refuse, and then indeed he became the Ger Rebbe for the rest of his life. Um, at the beginning of the year, on our tour, we, we gave you in, with Rev Devoren, anybody any, who was on that tour? Yeah? Um, so we stood by his son's kever that's right across from, from Machne Yehuda, the Shuk. Do you remember that? 
Um, he, like we've learned a few uh, such giants, refused being a rabbi with, with a salary. He didn't even take pidionos, which was what many Hasidim did when they took money with the, you know, the Hasidim would write their kvitlach, they'd write their prayer on their piece of paper and fold it over with a bill of money and give it to the Rebbe. And the Svasemis was not of that breed. He didn't take any money from anybody. Um, he lived instead, uh, his wife had a tobacco shop and uh, he lived off the proceeds. He actually insisted on keeping the books, much like the Chafetz Chaim would do. He was accepted by Hasidim, by Misnagdim. Uh, he would be, I mean, increasingly, as we see the world, worlds merging between Hasidim and Misnagdim, that, uh, and he's certainly a symbol of that. His works cover all of Shas. His Chumash, a, 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 an invaluable commentary on Chumash, on the Medrash, on the Zohar. In Lech Lecha, in Lech Lecha he teaches that um, Hashem, in fact, calls to everybody. He's calling to you right now, too. It's just that Avram Avinu had the distinction, Lech Lecha, in the fact that he actually chose, chose to listen. Most of us ignore Hashem's calls, but Avram Avinu listened. And that's the emphasis in the beginning, says the Sfas Emes. His, um, related by, uh, by being a, 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 another, inf uh, another strand of the Kutzker dynasties, was Rav Avram Ben Zev Nachum Bornstein of Sokotchev, the Sokotchev Rebbe, who was a child prodigy. He wrote Hidushim when he was 10 years old. When he was 14, he married uh, the Kutzker's da uh, daughter. That's a good shidduch. He became the uh, leader of Alexander Hasidim and a close friend of the Sfas Emes. In 1898, he sent his son, the Shemit Mishmuel. We have a whole set of the Shemit Mishmuel at home. Fantastic, deep, uh, wonderful verse. Uh, his son's uh, commentary on the Chumash and on, and on, and on the Haggadah and other, other, other works. Um, anyway, so he sends his son and his son-in-law to Eretz Yisrael, and he, with very specific instructions, says, you buy land for a community of holy people. And only if you can ac acquire land for kosher Jews will we then move to Eretz Yisrael, live there according to Torah. They tried, and they failed. The laws, the Turkish land laws were impossible, and they gave up. Um, he has, the Sokotchev Rebbe has a tshuva that I'm going to give over at, at one point next month. We'll talk about the mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael and how he asked the question, how is it possible for a gadol, for any serious Jew to live outside the land when it's possible to make aliyah given this eternal important mitzvah? Uh, interesting, fascinating tshuva. Um, like the Kutzker Rebbe, like his father-in-law, he was uh, very reluctant to commit anything to writing. Remember the Kutzker burned all of his books? Uh, he, the the Sakhachevar Rebbe delayed publishing his his works. Baruch Hashem for the Torah world. In the end, he did publish them, and they have an immense impact in halacha. Uh, some of the famous works are the Avnei Nezer, the Egle Tal. He wrote that one shouldn't rely on his psak in any area of halacha unless some other poster could be found to agree. He was not willing to take responsibility. That was his humility. Tomorrow at 2 o'clock, we have a pretty interesting, totally new, totally changing gears. I am going to focus on secular stuff tomorrow. Uh, it's important for the story. Um, we're going to talk about the development of, of um, Zionism and the anti-Semitism, the new breed of anti-Semitism in the late 19th century, early 20th century that would uh, influence its development. We'll talk about Theodor Herzl, of course, um, and the second Aliyah.